God be with me and be with us. Amen. I want to begin by asking, why is Jonah so mad and resistant to preach restoration to Nineveh? In order to answer that question, we need to know who Nineveh was and what effect Nineveh had on Jonah and Jonah's people. Nineveh was the most important city of an empire, the Assyrian Empire. And like all empires, the Assyrian Empire spread out across the land, took land from other people, and would almost always enslave those people, steal from those people, and mistreat those people. Empires oppress people. Jonah knew this about Assyria. And in just a few years, Assyria would take land from Jonah and Jonah's people, enslave Jonah's people, and mistreat Jonah's people. But still, why is Jonah so mad? Doesn't he want to see Assyria repent? Doesn't he want to see them turn from their evil and oppressive ways? He doesn't. And maybe he doesn't because he knows the ways of empire. He knows the logic of empire. Perhaps he knows that empires tend to make peace and then break that peace. Proclaim freedom and then re-enslave and imprison. Grant rights and then take those rights away. Invite people in and then send those people away. Maybe Jonah knew that even if Nineveh turned from their evil ways, within just a few years his people would still be overtaken, enslaved, and abused by empire. So in godly play, we ask the question, where do you see yourself in this story? If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you probably know the story of Jonah, and you've most likely always seen yourself in this story as Jonah. But maybe that's not where we, folks like us, are supposed to see ourselves in this story, and we'll come back to that. But why do we tend to always see ourselves in this story as Jonah? Why do we do that? Well, Jonah is the bringer. He's the sender of good news, and Nineveh is, in this case, the receiver of that news. And we in the West have been taught that as Christians, we are always the bringers and senders of good news. And the receivers of that message that we bring is what we call the world, or, well, everyone else. Y'all remember being encouraged when you were young, over and over again, to share your faith with your friends and with total strangers? I don't recall ever being encouraged to listen to my friends. I don't recall ever being told to listen to strangers, to see what good news they might have for me. Our tendency to always put ourselves in the place of the senders and bringers and teachers of good news is what Willie Jennings calls pedagogical imperialism. And he describes it like this. He says, we in the West present a God who knows everything and wants to know nothing which means that, in turn, we present a Christianity that knows everything and wants to know nothing. He goes on and says, This is what I am terming pedagogical imperialism, which turned the entire world outside of the colonial West into perpetual students and cast those in the West, us, as eternal teachers. We've offered, he says, a Christianity that is not open to learning, not open to change, not open to adapting, but instead either assimilates people or segregates people. As a quick aside, Jennings suggests that we might begin to heal from our pedagogical imperialism 
by remembering that we are Gentiles, remembering that the Christian story is not originally our story. It's Israel's story. In other words, we are not primarily teachers of this story. We're actually learners of this story. So in light of all this, what if we saw ourselves in the Jonah story, not as Jonah, but as Nineveh? But the first chapter of Jonah begins with, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because, God says, its wickedness has come before me. But are we really wicked? Are we really supposed to see ourselves in this story as wicked Nineveh? Maybe we can pose the question like this. Are we really supposed to see ourselves in this story as folks who participate in and benefit from an oppressive empire? There's no for sure answer to that question, but still, I want us to wonder why Christians in the West, that is folks like us, seldom see ourselves in this story as Nineveh. I want to offer a few possible reasons why folks like us seldom think to see ourselves in the Jonah story as Nineveh. And by the way, most of these are things that we do and believe unconsciously. When you do something or believe something unconsciously, you do it or you believe it without willfully realizing that you're doing it or believing it. So first, perhaps we seldom see ourselves in the Jonah story as Nineveh because we believe that the world is made up of people who are either all bad or all good. Eddie Gloud, in an interview on the Intercept podcast, says the following, we need to be careful that we don't simply want to find the easily identifiable evil people and the easily identifiable good people in the world. Doing that allows us to excuse ourselves from being complicit in the reproduction of inequality, oppression, and exploitation. Maybe one example of what Gloud is talking about is when folks say things like, don't call me racist, I never owned slaves. But of course, slavery was, and currently still is, sustained and perpetuated by way more than just people who own slaves. I mean, are you like me? I always seem to forget that Judas was not the only disciple who betrayed Jesus. They actually all betrayed Jesus. Perhaps another reason we seldom see ourselves in the position of Nineveh has to do with believing that changing our language when it comes to other people is a significant moral achievement. Now, Learning to be careful and respectful with your speech is terrific, and for some folks, like my dad, that actually is a significant moral achievement. But our language should always lead to new action. Again, our new language should always lead to new action. And unless it does, our new language is just bankrupt and pointless. James Cone 
in black theology and black power says, it's easy to change the language of oppression without changing the socio-political situation of its victims. Perhaps a third reason we seldom see ourselves in the position of Nineveh in the Jonah story has to do with believing that feeling really, really sad for a mistreated group of people and then expressing how sad we are for that group of people is a significant moral achievement. I couldn't think of any really terrific examples of this, but I'll just say that this sort of thing happens all the time on Facebook and Twitter. And again, we could say that just feeling sorrow and expressing that sorrow on some sort of public platform is bankrupt and pointless unless our sorrow leads to some form of action. Finally, perhaps another reason we seldom see ourselves in the Jonah story as Nineveh has to do with innocently shielding ourselves from the suffering of others. So I've been living with someone else for the past five days. In the dorms at Loyola Marymount University next to Inglewood, because I'm teaching middle school in the fall and I'm participating in a training at LMU that's preparing us to do that. I'm training with Teach for America, and the reason I bring this up is because part of the training that Teach for America involves us in is daily participation in what they call a diversity, equity, inclusiveness culture group. It's quite a mouthful, but these groups um, encourage us to reflect on what's called the intersectionality of our identities. In other words, no one's identity can be bottom-lined to just one thing. So, for example, I'm a white, straight, cisgendered, able-bodied, except for my lack of being able to hear, married, um, Christian male. That's my intersection. That's my identity intersection. My roommate, though, this person I've been living with, through conversation, um, he's a great dorm mate, but he says, right, through conversation I've discovered that he thinks that these diversity, equity, inclusiveness, culture groups are a total waste of time. And after many conversations, he eventually expressed that he thinks this because it's obvious to him and to everyone else that racism no longer exists in the United States. I thought that was a pretty bold thing to say, and I, I wanted to know where he was coming from, so I asked, well, what do you say about, for instance, Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman? And he said, who's Trayvon Martin? The reason I tell that story is because my friend, my doormate, had this view or this understanding of the world, not as a result of knowledge and awareness, but as a result of being shielded, I think, innocently, protected from the realities of inequality, oppression, exploitation, and suffering that are taking place in our world and in the U.S. specifically. James Baldwin suggests that being able to innocently shield ourselves from the reality of these inequalities oppression, exploitation, and suffering in our world, he suggests that that's a particularly 
American experience. He says, the entertainment industry is compelled to present to America a self-perpetuating fantasy about American life. The mere concept of entertainment is difficult to distinguish from the use of drugs, or he says narcotics. He goes on and says, to watch the television for any length of time is to learn something really frightening and to learn some really frightening things about the American sense of reality. We are cruelly trapped, he says, between what we would like to be and what we actually are. We cannot possibly begin to become what we would like to be until we ask ourselves exactly why the lives we live on this continent are mainly so empty, so tame, and so lonely. These images are designed, he says, not to trouble us, but to reassure us. They also weaken our ability to deal with the world as it is, ourselves as we are. Perhaps one example of what Baldwin is talking about here is the movie La La Land. All in all, it's a pretty good movie. I mean, it almost won Best Picture. But during a group discussion once, Kevin Nye highlighted that La La Land is a total lie in terms of how most people experience Hollywood. Hollywood actually ruins and destroys many people's lives. La La Land, in this case, is Baldwin's narcotic that innocently shields us from the world's inequality, oppression, exploitation, and suffering. And let me add this. When it comes to innocently shielding ourselves from inequality, oppression, exploitation, and suffering in the world, it's possible that where we choose to live where we choose to work, where we choose to hang out and maybe even vacation, also has this kind of shielding effect on us. But there's good news in this text for folks like us. Instead of simply destroying Nineveh, God sought to forgive and restore Nineveh. God, in liberating the wretched of the earth, also seeks to liberate those responsible for that wretchedness. However, right, there's always a however. Before forgiveness and restoration, there must be repentance. But what is real repentance? And we might just cut to the chase here and ask, for folks like us, what does it really look like to be someone or a group of people, a community of people, a communion of people who are following Jesus to the cross? Aaron Defoe Hunter once said something that got my attention, and basically anytime Aaron says anything, it gets my attention. But one time in particular, she asked, do the choices I've made and am making about the way I live my life reflect that I really believe that in the end, God wins? God has the last word. In other words, do I live like I believe this story is the real story, the true story? But what might some of those choices look like, right? What might a life that truly believes that God wins, that God has the last word, look like? Maybe James Cohn can help. Maybe James Cohn can help us address this question. Again, in Black Theology and Black Power, Cohn writes, God's righteousness is directed to the helpless and the poor, those who can expect no security from this world. The rich, the secure, the suburbanite can't have any part in God's righteousness because of their trust and dependence on the things of this world. God's righteousness is reserved for those who come empty-handed, without economic, political, 
or social power. That is why the prophets and Jesus are so critical of the economically secure. Their security, Cohen says, gets in the way of absolute security in God. So in other words, we might ask now, do my choices and concerns in terms of my economic security reflect that I truly believe that this is a true story, that in the end God wins, that God has the last word? Richard Rohr gets at this point when he says in a text called A Lever and Place to Stand, he says, Jesus demands of his first followers a living witness to a simple life on the edge because once you are at the visible center, once you are on top, you have too much to prove and too much to protect. Every great spiritual teacher has warned against this. The only free positions in this world are at the bottom, at the edge of things. Everywhere else, you have too much to maintain, an image to promote, and a fear of losing it all, which ends up controlling your whole life. Roar goes on and he says, an overly protective life and protected life does not know deeply or broadly. So Jesus did not call us to the poor and to the pain just to be helpful to them. Although that is wonderful too, he called us there for fundamental solidarity with the real. And from that to the transformation of ourselves, we do not, Rohr says, go to the edge just to help others. But only later do we realize that it was really we went there to let those folks help us in ways we never knew we needed. It's called by some of us reverse mission. The ones we think we are saving end up saving us and in the process redefine the very meaning of salvation. So what did Nineveh do? How did Nineveh repent? What does the text tell us about repentance here? The text says the Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. So they fasted, they put on sackcloth. It's tough to know where to even begin here though, when it comes to letting go of our economic security, as Cohn says. It's tough to know where to even begin when it comes to not just being helpful to the poor and to those in pain, but to actually, as Rohr says, become the poor, to become those in pain, to become those who do not live at the visible center but on the edges of things where we can have absolute trust in God. Perhaps fasting can be a way of moving in that direction but what might this kind of fast look like? Maybe Stanley Hauerwas can help. Hauerwas writes, we are tempted to think that we are not what we have or the securities we have and what we have. It's a typical Hauerwas sentence. He goes on and says, for example, I might have many possessions, but they're not the real me. The real me is somehow an inward spiritual me. 
Jesus, however, will not let us get away with this sort of thinking. He says where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. The gospel for folks like us, and in this text, Hauerwas uses America in places for folks like us, is learning to free ourselves from believing the lie that we can obtain security through our possessions. In other words, the gospel, again, for folks like us, is learning to fast. Fasting is not just for Lent. It's not just for Lent. Fasting is the very heart and soul of the life of a disciple of Jesus. Fasting is learning to live without what I thought I could not live without. Nothing enslaves us, folks like us, more than those things we think we cannot live without. So invite, I invite us to consider this morning and I invite us to consider just indefinitely, what do we think we can't live without? What do we think we need? Let me end with a few thoughts on fasting. What if we thought of fasting as a tool it's something you use. A tool is something you use. A tool is never an end in itself. It's not the point. It's what we use to get to that point. So what if we thought of fasting as a tool or a kind of training or a kind of practicing in order to become like Jesus, to become, as Cohn and Rohr suggest, not just helpers of the oppressed, but the oppressed. Christians who lived about 100 years after Jesus believed that fasting was a kind of training or practicing for becoming a martyr. A martyr is a troublemaker, someone who is so disruptive, so disobedient, that people who are in charge really worry about you and want to see you dead. And we have an example of that right here on our communion table. What if we thought of fasting in terms of freedom as a way of moving in the direction of God, or better, as a way of moving away from empire, away from our identity as people of Nineveh, and returning to God, or to where God is, where, as Cohn and Rohr suggest, is with the oppressed. God is with the poor. In fact, again, God is the oppressed. God is the poor. And finally, what if we thought of fasting as a weapon? What if we thought of fasting as a weapon? A weapon against inequality, oppression, exploitation, and suffering in the world. Because every tool is a weapon if you hold it right.